You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. Fifty years ago, it was hard to be a bald eagle in the United States. Forests across the country had been decimated to make room for people and industry felling critical nesting habitat. In place of those forests, there were now farms and ranches. And as eagles swooped in for a quick flyby chicken run, those people began shooting eagles en masse. If that wasn't enough, pesticides like DDT had seeped into waterways and the fish eagles liked to hunt, killing even more in the process. By the 1970s, the bald eagle, the very symbol of America, was under threat of extinction. But then, from the halls of the United States government, a different kind of eagle swooped in, this time holding an olive branch. Okay, that eagle is a metaphor for the government, and the olive branch is the Endangered Species Act. Stay with me here. Fifty years ago, Congress passed the landmark piece of legislation designed to protect the unique and vanishing biodiversity of the United States, the Endangered Species Act, or ESA. Since it was passed, the ESA has listed more than 1,600 species for protection, and the overwhelming majority of listed animals, including the bald eagle, have been saved from extinction. But over the last five decades, another human-caused problem has emerged, that of climate change. So what have we learned in the last 50 years about better protecting the environment and what lessons can we take with us for the next 50 years of the Endangered Species Act? Here to tell us more is Noah Greenwald. Noah is the Endangered Species Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. Welcome, Noah. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, Libby. So the Endangered Species Act was signed into law by Richard Nixon 50 years ago. How was our environment at the time? What prompted this law to be passed? Right. So um, Richard Nixon not only signed it, but was actually an advocate for the Endangered Species Act. If people want to search on the Internet, he has quite an eloquent signing statement that went along with the Endangered Species Act. And the Endangered Species Act was really the culmination of, you know, a strong environmental movement in the late 60s and early 70s that resulted in passage of the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the National Environmental Policy Act. That was all part of a recognition that we needed to do better to protect the environment. And in particular for the Endangered Species Act, you know, there was a recognition that species were being lost, you know, that we lost uh, the passenger pigeon, for example, that uh, wolves and grizzly bears had disappeared for most of their range, that bald eagles were mostly gone from from the lower 48, uh, Washington being an exception. It was one of the places where they survived. I'm curious about the politics of all this, because the Republican Party today is not necessarily known for being out in front on legislating protections for the environment. Was there more of a bipartisan mood in the 1970s when a president like Richard Nixon could be the champion of a piece of legislation like this? Oh, definitely. You know, the Endangered Species Act passed nearly unanimously. You know, Richard Nixon had been, you know, being from Santa Barbara, had been really affected by the oil spill that had happened in the late 60s off the California coast. And so, yeah, I think it was much more bipartisan. And I actually think that the American public is largely bipartisan on this issue, that you know, polls show that the majority of people, including the majority of Republicans, support the Endangered Species Act, support protecting endangered species. And it's at this point really the Republican Party that's out of step with that. 
um, view. And I think that largely reflects on, you know, well-funded corporate campaign to undermine regulatory protections for our environment. You work really closely with the Endangered Species Act as part of your job. How does a species get protection under the law? Yeah, so species get protection under the Endangered Species Act by being listed as endangered or threatened. And there's two different pathways that that can happen. One is that any person, um, any group, even a state or an agency can petition to have a species listed. And once that happens, the act prescribes specific deadlines for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or the National Marine Fisheries Service to respond to those petitions within two years. Uh, within one year, they're supposed to determine whether the species warrants protection. If so, then they have another year to finalize it. The other pathway is that the agencies can themselves propose to protect a species, and then they have one year to finalize it. For the most part, it's been petitions and then lawsuits to enforce the deadlines that have resulted in species being listed. You know, more than 80% of all species, the roughly 1,700 species that are listed, filed petitions or lawsuits. And, you know, that's really been an unfortunate part of it because it's made the whole thing take a lot longer than it should. As I said, it's supposed to take no more than two years, but on average, it's taken Fish and Wildlife Service 12 years to provide species protections. And during that time, species decline, recovery becomes harder and more expensive. Yeah. I mean, the reason that this process is started is because a species is at risk. What does that mean for individual species that have to go through this huge waiting period when they're already not on firm ground? Yeah, as I say, it, it often means that they continue to decline, that they continue to lose habitat, and it just makes it all the more likely that they're going to go extinct. You know, an example would be a species known as the lesser prairie chicken, which is a grouse that occurs on the, on the southern plains. And um, the majority of its habitat is over the Permian Basin, which is one of the largest oil and gas plays in the world. We first started working for protection for that species in the 90s. It finally just gained protection last year. During that time, really, the Permian blew up and there was a massive amount of oil and gas development in its habitat. So, you know, the, the situation for the bird is much more precarious than if it would have been protected in the early 90s in the first place. When does a petition not result in protection? I mean, at what point would a species not be listed after the process has started to try to get them protected under the Endangered Species Act? Well, there are some times when after a petition is filed, more information is gathered. You know, there's more surveys and they're found in more places or there's taxonomic work done that shows it you know, not to be a valid species. So there are times where petitions are filed and then the species ends up not needing protection. There's also times where the Fish and Wildlife Service denies species protections for political reasons, and then we have to go to court in order to overturn that. And an example of that is the wolverine, um, which like the lesser prairie chicken protections were first sought in the 90s, 
it was denied twice and twice overturned by the courts and now has finally received protection, been proposed for protection. Okay, so you have filed a petition. The process has gone forward. Possibly you've had to go to court in order to get the species ultimately protected. But now it has protections. What does that offer a species? What does it mean in terms of uh, what people can do or have to do when they are encountering or working around these species? Yeah, the Endangered Species Act provides really strong protections. It provides a blanket prohibition on tink of species by any person or company or government. And take is broadly defined as harm, harassment, killing, habitat destruction. So that's a really strong prohibition. It also places requirements on federal agencies to avoid jeopardizing listed species or adversely modifying their critical habitat in any action that they permit, fund, or carry out. They do that by consulting with either NOAA Fisheries or the Fish and Wildlife Service, um, which you know frequently results in changes to projects. Usually doesn't result in projects being stopped, but it does result in changes to projects or you know agencies or companies having to put money towards conserving listed species. And that duty on federal agencies really provides for a lot of conservation. It also requires development of a recovery plan, um, so people put their heads together to try and figure out what the species needs, and it also directs funding towards species through a provision of the Act called Section 6. What are the different levels of protection under the ESA? I get confused sometimes when something is listed as threatened or actually endangered. What, what do those mean? Yeah, so with endangered species... I mentioned the take prohibition. They automatically get the take prohibition. With threatened species, the agencies are supposed to put forward what's called a 4D rule or a special rule that defines what actions will be prohibited that harm the species. For since the, you know, not long after the act was passed, Fish and Wildlife Service did something smart, which was to apply a blanket 4D rule. So any species listed as threatened would automatically get the same protections as an endangered species unless they put forward a specific rule. Those were pretty limited. Things like catch and release fishing for listed trout would be an example. The Trump administration did away with that blanket rule. And we're currently waiting for, we sued over that and the Biden administration is now going to restore it. So let's take some of the Pacific Northwest species that have been protected under the Endangered Species Act. Those include salmon, gray whale, uh, gray wolves, grizzly bears, and wolverines. How effective has the act been at rebounding those species? Yeah, so I mean, I you know, with Northwest species, the thing I would say about it is the act was the primary driver of the Northwest Forest Plan. Were it not for the Endangered Species Act, we would not have seen the protection of our last remaining old growth forests, which provide habitat for spotted owls, marbled murrelets, salmon, and many, many other species. We would not have seen such strong protections for our watersheds to benefit salmon. So, in that regard, it's been a tremendous success. You know, the Northwest Forest Plan, I would say, is one of the most 
you know, forward thinking conservation efforts in U.S. history. And and so people know that it's 24.9, almost 25 million acres of forest that was protected in 1994, um, old growth uh, land and forest along the West Coast. Exactly. That was just tremendous. You know, I think what we've seen with, say, a species like the spotted owl is that the problems we're causing in the natural world are starting to coalesce. And so most scientists would agree that largely due to our actions, planting trees in the Great Plains primarily has allowed barred owls to move from the eastern U.S. to the northwest. And so they've become a new challenge for spotted owls. And so the species is hanging on, but they face this new threat, which is really unfortunate. I think, you know, were it not for the Northwest Forest Plan, were it not for the protections of the old growth, however, I think the spotted owl would already be gone because it just wouldn't have had any chance against the barred owl with less habitat. And, you know, as more habitat is grows and is developed as more forest becomes old growth, the spotted owl is going to have much more of a fighting chance at surviving the barred owl. You know, similarly with the marbled murrelet, you know, we're seeing warming ocean conditions. We're seeing a rapidly changing ocean due to climate change, which presents an additional complication for that species. You know, so it's, you know, between invasive species, climate change and habitat destruction, all three of those things combining, we're increasingly in a tough spot and we just need to protect more of the natural world. I'm talking with Noah Greenwald with the Center for Biological Diversity. We're talking about the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act on Soundside today. What happens when a species does rebound under the plan? I mean, the gray whale, for example. At what point do you say, okay, the protections of the Endangered Species Act are no longer necessary? Yeah, I mean, there's been over 50 species that have been fully recovered. The gray whale is a great example, you know, um, hunting whaling was, you know, almost drove them to extinction um, with the prohibition of whaling, uh, which coincided with passage of the Endangered Species Act. You know, we've seen gray whales come back. Likewise, you know, banning of DDT has allowed bald eagles and also protection of their habitat has allowed bald eagles to to recover their numbers. I mean, now they're pretty much a common sight in every state in the lower 48 at this point. So it's been, you know, we've seen tremendous success with the Endangered Species Act, despite what I talked about with the coalescence of a number of threats at this point. And despite not really putting enough funding to it, and in recent years, attacks from primarily Republicans in Congress, but, you know, we've seen species fully recover and many other species have been stabilized or are improving in numbers. Let's talk about some of the reasons for those fights over protection. I mean, the spotted owl is kind of the quintessential example of this from the Pacific Northwest, right? Uh, timber industry and and logging interests argued that the protection campaign for the spotted owl was really going to destroy economies, that this was a battle being waged in the name of protecting species, but it was threatening people's way of life. And I think that underlying all this is a question about the use of this land and whether we should be prioritizing people's 
jobs and the economic use of our natural resources versus protecting species. You know, in the spotted owl fight, it was like, oh, these hippies want to protect these owls and they don't understand that these are real jobs on the line for working people. Um, Oftentimes there's, you know, kind of a class element involved. What do you make of the ways that these arguments have broken down over the years? Well, it's a complicated question, Libby. I mean, one is, you know, there was a loss of jobs in the timber industry in the early 80s. Well, before the spotted owl was listed, that was attributed to mechanization primarily. And so that's not something the timber industry really wants to talk about a lot is that their own change in practices resulted in massive job losses. I would note too that resource extraction often results in a boom and bust economy. You know, in the 80s, we were rapidly depleting our old growth forests. And so there would have been a loss of jobs and a loss of all the old growth forests if we didn't stop that. So I would say, you know, it's it's complicated. It's not as simple as owls versus jobs. Those jobs would have been lost. And, you know, frankly, I think not enough was done to help people who were displaced by the timber industry. And oftentimes that's the case. I would also note that Logging is the second most dangerous job in the country after coal mining. And so that form of employment is often very costly for people and families. And, you know, those people are not taken care of well enough by the timber industry. There's people who've been hurt, um, whose lives have been disrupted. And so, you know, from my perspective, Yes, there's a class issue involved, but I think that it's the timber industry that's largely responsible for that and um, hasn't hasn't taken care of their people. Often today, rather than timber, fights over the Endangered Species Act have moved to places where there are valuable oil or gas resources under the habitat of contested species, like an ongoing fight in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. People who want to drill argue that species on that land will not be severely affected. How do you see those fights playing out today, Noah? Yeah, I mean, I think just as we were talking about the timber industry, a lot of these conflicts and fights come down to really come down to a battle between short term economic interests and future generations, the health of the planet for future generations, all of our food, most of our medicines come from species. Species are also the building blocks of ecosystems. They moderate flooding, they cycle nutrients, they pollinate our crops, they um, reduce carbon in, in the atmosphere, they moderate climate. We're as dependent on these ecosystems as the species that are disappearing are. And the fact that so many species are disappearing really reflects that the quality of the ecosystems that we depend on are declining. And this is going to be really problematic for future generations if we don't take a look at the bigger picture. You know, we need to leave fossil fuels in the ground. I mean, truthfully, there's so many trade-offs with fossil fuels, you know, how many, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people die of asthma, you know, and and lung-related issues because of air pollution related to fossil fuels cancer deaths, you know, there's there's so much pollution related to that. And so, you know, an example would be willow. 
you know, the offshore oil drilling project in Alaska that was approved by the Biden administration. Native communities who live near that project definitely don't want it. And it's it's understandable because oil and gas drilling leaves a mess in its place. So, you know, you get a lot of money is made in the short term, but in the long term, people suffer. Noah, is there a way that the Endangered Species Act, you know, again, at 50 years, we're kind of taking stock of its impact on our world. The Endangered Species Act is sort of the wedge that starts the process of looking at wider protections for land and for environmental goals that there's really no other legal framework to do so. Absolutely. I mean, we we talked about the Northwest Forest Plan, which came about because of the Endangered Species Act. There's also over 100 wildlife, national wildlife refuges that cover 21 million acres that were largely created to protect endangered species. And then, you know, things like keeping our water clean, you know, protecting water bodies, even protecting our climate, you know, the Endangered Species Act plays a role there. You know, the listing of the polar bear as a threatened species because of the loss of sea ice, you know, was really a, a catalyst for people understanding that climate change was real and something that's happening and something we need to address. That said, I would say, you know, we need other laws and policies along with the Endangered Species Act if we're truly, truly going to protect the environment and you know, in particular, we saw a substantial weakening of the Clean Water Act um, by the Supreme Court in last year um, under a case called Sackett, which drastically reduced the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act, um, limited it uh, from protecting wetlands, limited it from protecting um, non-perennial streams. And, that, and that's really a shame. You know, we all need water to live and it's not going to happen in Congress anytime soon, apparently, but we need a strengthened Clean Water Act. And, you know, we need to take these problems more seriously and put more resources behind them. Yeah. Is there any final thought you want to leave us with about the next 50 years of the Endangered Species Act and the ways in which some of these gaps in protection might be able to be remedied? I think, you know, we're at a real tipping point right now with climate change. And people don't realize how interrelated the extinction crisis and climate change are. You know, it's it's not, not just burning of fossil fuels, it's land clearance as well as a substantial source of greenhouse gas emissions, cutting forests down, including in the Northwest is a substantial source of greenhouse gas emissions. So we have to, you know, there's an effort um, by the UN to protect 30% of the of the Earth's surface by 2030 and 50% by 2050. And those goals are absolutely needed to address extinction and to address climate change. And if we don't take action now, people are going to suffer in the future. Future generations will not inherit a good world. And and that's just tragic. And so, I, you know, the main thing is, is we just have to take these problems seriously. We have to set short-term economic interests aside. We have to put more resources and funding into these problems. Noah Greenwald is the Endangered Species Director at the Center for Biological Diversity. Noah, thank you very much. 
Thanks, Libby. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. This show is only possible because listeners support us. If you're able to give right now, please check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m., Monday through Thursday, or anytime online at KUOW.org.